Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore elections issues that make it harder for us to participate in democracy, the consequences of that, and how we can address these issues and improve our civic health. This includes things like redistricting, campaign finance, voter suppression, weaponizing the recall, and other issues. My guest is Jonathan Metastein, Executive Director of California Common Cause. Common Cause has been part of the successful redistricting effort that we currently have in place. From the start, you spearheaded and sort of shepherded this effort in. Uh, So talk a little bit about why redistricting was so important for Common Cause to carry forward. In California and across the nation, we've seen uh, the legacy of gerrymandering excluding voters and communities from our democracy. Sometimes that's really pernicious racial gerrymandering. Um, that has locked out communities of color from representation and power. Sometimes it's partisan gerrymandering that uh, entrenches um, power for one political party over the other for a decade, which leads to disillusionment and cynicism in our politics and disengagement by our voters. And we're seeing examples of both of those across the nation now. We live in that reality in a number of states um, in America in 2022. Uh, In California, what we saw... uh, Dating back to our last redistricting run by politicians, that was the 2000 redistricting, a handshake agreement between Democrats and Republicans, not an extreme racial gerrymander, not an extreme partisan gerrymander. Instead, a handshake agreement between those in power to draw new districts that kept those in power in power. Uh, It was an agreement by every incumbent to make sure they maximize their odds of getting reelected and to shut out new representation, particularly for emerging communities. I once had the opportunity to uh, lobby a lawmaker in the Capitol about a good government reform bill on redistricting, and he shared with me that he had been part of the legislature back in the 1990-91 redistricting. And he was pulled into a back room by legislative leadership that had a mapper present, and the mapper asked him, which voters do you want and which ones do you not want? Which neighborhoods do you want and which ones do you not want? That was the way redistricting was done in California and still is done in a lot of parts of the country. So in the 2008 election, uh, California Common Cause worked with a number of allies to put on the ballot a transformative ballot measure that took redistricting out of the hands of politicians and put it in the hands of the people. It created the California Independent Citizen-Run Redistricting Commission that we have had for two cycles now. And it has led to a dramatically more participatory, more transparent, and more fair redistricting process. And I don't think it's too bold to say that California's state-level redistricting process is now the envy of the nation and represents the high watermark for how to do redistricting right. What are some of the things you saw right away after the 2008 election and then uh, we draw the lines and the the first commission was seated and the first maps were drawn in this way? What was the immediate effect of that uh, in your estimation? Enormous participation. When our democracy actually uh, works well and, and is clearly being done in the public interest, people want to participate. Uh, I believe the first commission had over 20,000 applicants. This most recent commission had over 20,000 applicants. People really want to be part of this participatory process that does democracy in public. Um, we also uh, saw a huge volume of um participation in the map drawing process. So the last commission um, held over 100 public meetings uh, that were all available to the public. This commission, 10 years later, 
held almost 200 meetings, every single one of which was live streamed um, for all of California to see. Um, and there was tens of thousands of public comments given in each of the two cycles. In this most recent cycle, the commission received almost 4,000 verbal public comment from members of the public and over 32,000 examples of written or emailed public comment from members of the California public, either draft maps or just written comment or emailed comment saying, I want you to keep this area together or these issues really matter in my neighborhood and I want you to make sure that those are honored in the redistricting process. A mobilization of the California public. They recognize this process is fair and worthy of their time and, and actually that they can make a difference. There's so few parts of our democracy where it really feels like a regular person, an ordinary person can make a difference. And uh, as a contrast to that um, disillusionment and cynicism, in this redistricting cycle with this redistricting commission, you could call in, you could give your comment in front of the 14 commissioners, their staff, their demographer, and the California public, and you could watch as the commissioners made changes to district lines immediately after somebody gave their comment. It was really a remarkable example of responsiveness in government. That's amazing. You know, maybe it was clear to Common Cause, but it revealed to, I think, the rest of us or to the public that there is this hunger to be involved, to care for our civic spaces and to have a voice. There are still so many issues across the country with gerrymandering and active efforts to exclude. California is this model, and yet we're seeing this trend of uh, really, not just gerrymandering, but really more and more and more egregious gerrymandering efforts in other states. Why do you think it's so important for people to be involved and have a voice? I think people have this little tiny resilient part of them that remains hopeful and idealistic about our democracy no matter how uh, how many times our democracy punches them in the face no matter how many times they see voter suppression in the headlines no matter how many times they see gerrymandering in the headlines no matter how many times our federal government deadlocks on something super basic that it ought to be able to do in the name of our communities and, and the American public there is some tiny piece of us that remains hopeful that uh, democracy can really work the way that it's supposed to. I'm not sure democracy has ever worked the way we we tell ourselves it right. does in, in America, right. right? If you look at the slow halting process by which we gave voting rights to different communities um, and different uh, types of folks uh, in this country, it was a multi-century process of fighting for equal representation at the ballot. So I don't know that our democracy has ever lived up to its ideals. And yet, there is something about the idea of a democracy that includes everyone and hears every voice that really sparks a flame in, in our, our tiny little hearts. And this redistricting process, it blows oxygen on those embers. It really does show people that they can make a difference and have a voice. Um, I really hope that independent commissions like California spread to other states. We saw Michigan adopt a California-style independent redistricting commission and a handful of other states um, adopted other redistricting commissions that I think were less well-constructed and saw some actually negative impacts. But a well-constructed California-style independent redistricting commission can really, um, I think, inspire people. And it has waterfall effects, what I call waterfall effects, which is to say, if you got involved in the redistricting process, you're then interested in how your district performs in the next election cycle. If the community you fought to keep whole in your assembly district or your congressional district can actually have its voice heard in the next election cycle. And so you have a reason to pay attention to state level legislative races. And so I think that it catalyzes more civic 
engagement and political participation um, in a long-term way. It feeds the idealism that lives, uh, maybe just barely, but lives within each of us. Right, that's still limping along. We still have got it. There's been this criticism of, oh, well, if red states or, or other states are going to gerrymander, that puts states doing the right thing, putting fairness first, putting civic engagement first at a disadvantage. Um, now, for me, I'm like, well, everyone should be doing the right thing, right? But how do you respond to that particular criticism? I think there's two responses. The first is chasing the cynical, venal bad behavior of uh red states that gerrymander by doing the same or by doing it even more intensely is, is just a road to destruction and madness. I mean, it really is a race to the bottom. I, I think there's an important caveat, which is that you're seeing blue states gerrymander as well in this cycle. And uh, it's kind of an equal opportunity game, though Republicans do control more state legislatures across the country. And so they have more opportunities to gerrymander. They also have shown over the course of the last several decades more of a willingness to exploit their advantage um, than Democrats have, but Democrats do do it. I just think that it is the road to a, a total collapse of Democratic participation. Um, and someone has to take a stand for doing the right thing, even if the other side won't. Um, I think the other argument is that in California, the rules that govern the Independent Commission are written such that the commission has to honor the Voting Rights Act, and it has to keep whole communities of interest that can be defined in a lot of ways, but oftentimes one way it's defined uh, is emerging communities that have never had the opportunity to achieve representation before. So, for example, um, if you can say uh, in this particular assembly district, there is a longtime um, uh, Latino and API farm worker community that has um, always had common interests, common educational attainment, common um, socioeconomic characteristics, uh, common immigration histories, and they've never been able to achieve representation. Under the rules that govern California's Independent Redistricting Commission, that is a community that has to be recognized and honored, and, and the districts have to be drawn in such a way that they are kept whole and able to speak with one voice in the next elections. And so what that means is that you have an opportunity, whether it redounds the benefits of Democrats or Republicans, it actually does sort of honor the diversity of our communities and allow for new communities to achieve a voice and representation. As it turns out, in a state as diverse as California um, and as blue as California, doing all of that doesn't end up hurting Democrats. Now, I don't care if it does or it doesn't. Right. That's actually not the point. Right, exactly. Uh, that's not really my interest or Common Cause's interest, and yet I think it's a hollow criticism. Everything gets into this party space, or everything gets into the Democrat-Republican space, and that's not what it's about. It's about representation. It's about um, making sure people have a voice, whatever that may mean, and that we can all work together and be civically engaged to solve our problems is, is the way I always see it. And um, that's why I've always appreciated Common Cause's work. And I'll just add one thing, which is that did an interview with members of ethnic media, and one of them said, there are lots of provisions written into the way California um, does its redistricting that is meant to honor communities of color and immigrant communities and what, what's called communities of interest. Um, and isn't that a bias in favor of uh, Democrats or progressives? And the answer is that our communities of color and our immigrant communities are themselves diverse. Uh, I worked, uh, you know, at an Asian American civil rights organization for years before I joined California Common Cause. And we were fighting to uplift and honor the voices and the voting rights of elders in the Filipino community or elders in the Vietnamese community or elders in the Chinese American community. 
those are folks who don't reliably vote for Democrats and, and their voices are equally valid. And so um, it is too simple a calculus to say, if you sort of uplift the voting rights of communities that have been frozen out of our democracy, you're going to end up with Democratic Party gains. It's just not that simple. Uh, and nor should it be. Is Common Cause working on anything nationally to to assist in in addressing gerrymandering? Yes. So we work in a wide variety of states to pass independent commissions or to pass other provisions of law that limit gerrymandering. So there are a number of states uh, that they don't use independent commissions, but they do have provisions in their state constitutions or in their state law that prohibit partisan gerrymandering or they prohibit redistricting shenanigans of one kind or another. And so you're seeing state courts step in to invalidate gerrymanders um, in a number of places where there isn't an independent commission. So we're fighting for those sorts of provisions in state law, or we're fighting for independent commissions wherever we can. It turns out independent redistricting is popular with voters of all parties. It will pass in a red state, it'll pass in a purple state, it'll pass in a blue state. We just have to sort of garner the, the resources and the political will to get it on the ballot. Um, and that assumes, of course, that these places have uh, ballot initiative systems and not all states do, but yes, common cause. Uh, we're working in a variety of states to try to bring reform. As we're talking about redistricting and gerrymandering, I'm thinking about the more you gerrymander, the less you actually have to listen to the people you represent because it's a sure thing, right? And that can lead us down this path to, you know, total annihilation, as you say, of our democracy. And campaign finance plays a role in that, yes? I absolutely think it's part of this democratic puzzle um, and the idea that when our systems of democracy feel rigged against regular folks, they have no reason to participate um, or less reason to participate. I think if you look at voting and voter turnout in isolation, you're only seeing a part of this larger puzzle. Um, so we, you know, we question why certain communities have lower voter participation or why um, young voters, voters of color, low-income voters are less likely to vote in midterms, for example. Um, and there's a variety of answers to that question, but one of them inevitably is that if democracy doesn't look like it works for you, if democracy looks like it's rigged in favor of people who sit with power already or who have money, um, who have every structural advantage, uh, there's not a lot of point in, in marshalling the time and the resources and the energy to go participate. Gerrymandering is one way in which democratic systems are rigged in favor of those who are already in power, and money in politics is another. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about issues affecting free and fair elections with California Common Cause Executive Director Jonathan Metastein. The Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, has made it very difficult to tamp down on the influence of um, wealthy special interests and millionaire donors because of uh, what I believe to be a fiction that the money that they spend in our politics is equated to their political speech under the First Amendment. Uh, and so what we have to do now as a result is pass um, small donor public financing systems. And uh, that's a term that many of your listeners may have not heard before. Um, but I really think it's it's something that more and more people need to get aware of because it is really the solution in the, in the campaign finance space. The way this works, let me give you one example of, of a small donor public financing system. It's Seattle's democracy voucher system. City of Seattle provides to every uh, eligible resident, not just U.S. citizens, not just registered voters, every eligible resident for $25 vouchers that they can donate to a political candidate or a campaign. The impact of that 
is that it puts giving power in the hands of families and neighborhoods and communities that would otherwise have zero. And it changes the incentives for candidates. If you're a city council candidate with a small staff and a small budget, and you have to make hard decisions about which doors you knock in order to earn votes, you're going to knock on the doors of families and households that have voted in four out of the last five elections or five out of the last five elections because you need to reach people you know are going to vote. Now, all of a sudden, you have a reason to knock on every door because if there's three adults living in a household that rarely votes, that's still three people who have $300 in democracy vouchers. Whether they know it or not, it's sitting in an envelope in the pile of mail on the kitchen counter. And if you can talk to them and you can sell yourself to them, you can get some of those vouchers. And now all of a sudden that family has been engaged. They have a reason to see who wins and potentially to vote. The results from Seattle are the democracy vouchers have dramatically increased the diversity of the donor pool. They have increased the diversity of who runs for office. They have dramatically increased the number of small donors. And really impressively, it has increased voter turnout among low propensity voters or first time voters. Um, and so we're trying to bring similar systems to the city of Oakland, to the city of San Jose, to the city of San Diego, and to other places around California. I love that. And part of that is just being seen, right? If you're seen, you feel valued and you want to engage or you feel invited to engage. So you mentioned Oakland and I'm in the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco. The redistricting process happens at the state level. And now that the state maps have been drawn, local communities are working on their maps. Are they beholden to the same rules that govern the state commission? And if not, what are some of the differences? Yes and no. So um, California Common Cause worked with a variety of our civil rights partners and good government partners in 2019 to pass a law called the Fair Maps Act that um, overhauled local redistricting law for the first time since the 1940s. And that law requires a minimum number of hearings. It requires public outreach. It requires transparency, none of which was required before. In the past, local redistricting was done in the dark with very little public participation. The Fair Maps Act also outlines a set of substantive line drawing criteria that um, city councils and county boards of supervisors have to follow when they draw district lines. And so they have to follow the Voting Rights Act, for example. They have to honor communities of interest. They have to keep neighborhoods together and whole. Um, they have to draw maps that are compact and contiguous. You've seen much more public participation um, in this local redistricting cycle, and yet uh, the law still unfortunately creates room for incumbents that want to manipulate the maps to keep themselves in power to do so. Um, and we've seen that in a number of cities and counties across California, which in the face of public outcry, they've drawn maps that are essentially the same as the ones that existed previously that allow every incumbent to run for election without issue or contest. And so the difference at the state level is that the state commission is explicitly prohibited from considering incumbency uh, advantage to incumbents or incumbent addresses. When they draw district lines at the state commission, they don't know where our congressional representatives live. They don't know where state senators and state assembly members live. They have no idea if they're drawing two state senators into the same district or whatever the case may be. At the local level, they have to follow all these rules, but they're not explicitly prohibited from knowing where the city council lives or where the board of supervisors lives. And so you can see these maps get manipulated. So we are hopeful that we can go back to the legislature and, and strengthen that law further 
so that the 2030 local redistricting cycle is even better than this one. That was my next question. What is our recourse? And so it's going back to the legislature. Is there anything that can be done immediately? There are lawsuits beginning to emerge against city councils and against county boards of supervisors. Uh, We'll see how successful they are. Um, Some of these gerrymanders are incredibly egregious uh, by city councils and county supervisors. I think it's particularly offensive when um, these local government bodies do literally zero to encourage participation by the public. They don't publicize. Uh, they don't um, uh, do any outreach or community education. And then they use the absence of public participation as justification for keeping the maps the same. So they'll say things like, well, no one came and testified to us about um, drawing new district lines. That means that they want us to keep them the same. Uh, and we'll just readopt our existing map with minimal changes. In reality, what they're doing is they're ensuring that they can run for re-election successfully, and they're using the fact that they have not cultivated an active local democracy as justification for really, um, I think, uh, manipulative and destructive actions. So there's lots of work to left to be done at the local level. I, I get asked a lot as someone who fights for voting rights and, and a better democracy in California, why I don't go do this work in Georgia, North Carolina, or Florida, or Ohio. And the answer is that there has to be somewhere that we build models of what a good democracy should look like. And California can be that in some instances. But also that at the local level, we see manipulation and shenanigans that in some cases are just as bad as other states. And so um, there's plenty of work left to be done uh, on the ground here. So you mentioned elections and democracy, which is a huge part of what Common Cause does. In fact, all of these efforts tie into a healthy democracy and fair elections. So these very explicit efforts now to make it more difficult to vote and close polling places and require in-person voting and get rid of mail-in ballots or not allow them. I mean, the, the list goes on. How is Common Cause engaging to try to address these efforts? The national level of Common Cause was a huge part of the fight for the first called the um, For the People Act and then called the Freedom to Vote Act, which were omnibus democracy reforms in Congress. Um, that weren't passed because of the presence of the filibuster and because of recalcitrance by Manchin and Cinema, And I mean, because of total Republican opposition to um, a pro-democracy agenda. I can't leave that out. The national organization has been mobilizing people in huge volumes to call their senators and to sort of mount a public campaign to generate awareness of these bills and pressure on the relevant lawmakers. Obviously, that didn't work. Um, And I'm grateful that the organization has state organizations in, I think, 35 states um, where we can work on fixing things at the local level, even if our national government remains gridlocked. In California, too few people are aware of massive inequities in our electorate. So people think voting in California is easy. We've solved these problems. The reality is that in California, our Latino community and our Asian American community vote at dramatically lower rates than the rest of the electorate. Uh, And with young voters, it's even worse. We do not have a truly representative democracy in California, despite the progress that we've made. So what do we here in California Common Cause do to solve those problems? The first is we work to pass um, legislation that makes voter registration easier, makes voting easier. We were a huge part of the effort during the pandemic to ensure um, a universal vote-by-mail ballot for all voters so no one had to jeopardize their health in order to cast their vote. Um, despite the presence of COVID. uh, We've also worked to, for example, uh, implement automatic voter registration at the DMV and are now part of an effort to take automatic voter registration to a variety of other state agencies. Um, And we work on the implementation of new voting laws. So we have a law in California called the Voters' Choice Act, which uh, 
is a new way that counties can run their election systems. They eliminate the neighborhood polling place and replace it with larger vote centers that provide more services and allow for early voting. The impact of that has been uh, more flexible voting and in some instances increases in voter turnout in the counties that have implemented the Voters' Choice Act. But there are good ways and there are bad ways to implement the Voters' Choice Act. If you implement a new voting law and a totally new voting system without educating the public on what you're doing, you have the opportunity to confuse voters and leave those voters who are least engaged behind. And so California Common Cause is working on the ground in a variety of counties right now to um, ensure that the law is implemented well in its first election cycle and to ensure that the community um, that needs to know what's happening is educated about those changes. That's an important point that to implement it versus implementing it well. It's so easy for people who are critics of any of this to point to the efforts that don't go well. And so you see it doesn't work, throw everything out. Are there any other issues that you see in California that we really need to be addressing with regard to um, elections and voting and, and fair representation? We're working on recall reform. The state's recall in 2021, many people felt it was a silly use of $300 million and that it was also a way in which had the outcome been different, you might end up with extreme minority rule. So you have a system that allows for a recall by 50% of voters, um, but you allow for the replacement of the recalled officer by whomever gets the most votes, which could have been 20% um, support on the second question of the recall ballot. It's also the case that the recall at the local level has been weaponized. We're seeing this in Bay Area communities, uh, setting aside the merit of any particular recall, for example, setting aside the, the, you know, the merits of the San Francisco school board recall. Across California, we're seeing recalls being weaponized against public servants where local actors who are upset about mask mandates or vaccine mandates or whatever the case may be are filing um, serial recalls that aren't going to ever qualify. Uh, and it's incredibly disruptive to the functioning of local governments, but also when it qualifies for an election, it often results in standalone special elections with infinitesimal turnout and at huge cost to um, local governments. And so we at California Common Cause are hopeful that we can see state-level recall reform and local recall reform. We don't want to eliminate access to the recall. The recall is a legitimate tool in the direct democracy toolbox. We need to be able to access the, the recall when it's legitimate. We also need to make sure that it's not being used for trivial matters. It's not being exploited, um, and it results in outcomes that are broadly representative of what the public wants. Common Cause is doing a lot of work to engage citizens and try to tackle these issues. What can the average citizen do? What can the average person do who cares about and is concerned about these issues? I think there's a handful of things. The first is if you are a person who has the means to donate, I think what happens with political donations is every two years we get really animated about people running for Congress in swing seats or people running for Senate in swing seats, and we start spreading our money around to candidates. I think that transformative reform in our democracy starts from the ground up, and it is not going to be driven by candidates who are self-interested in running for a particular seat. I suggest finding those organizations that are working to build a better democracy and I'm not making a self-interested pitch for California Common Cause. If you'd like to donate to us, Godspeed, I, I would be so grateful. But if you think your money is better donated in, in states where we're seeing more active, more pernicious voter suppression, find the organizations that are working day in and day out, not every two years, day in and day out to build a better democracy and to engage communities that have been left out and donate to those organizations. They need your money more than someone who's going to raise $20 million for their Senate race. 
I would also say that if you are interested in getting involved around election time, there are organizations like California Common Cause and like uh, Asian Law Caucus in the Bay Area that run poll monitoring programs where you get trained to be a protector of voters and you go into the community at voting sites in the early voting period and on election day and you monitor for problems, you help voters, um, you monitor, for example, for disability access or language access, um, and you can be part of not just aiding voters on election day, but amassing evidence that's needed to then bring further reforms in future legislative cycles. So sometimes that's called election protection. Sometimes it's called poll monitoring. The last thing I'll say, a lot of these reforms have to happen at the local level before they pass at the state level, and they have to pass at the state level before they pass at the federal level. So look into bringing an independent redistricting commission, public financing of elections to your city or your county, because our democracy at the federal level is so broken that pouring money into, you know, I don't know, Congress feels just less effective to me. If we can win from the ground up, we're gonna build towards transformative change at the higher levels. Thank you to my guest, Jonathan Metta-Stein, Executive Director at California Common Cause. To learn more about their work, go to commoncause.org slash California. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening. <laughs>